0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast from our 2018 programme of our honoured New Zealand writer, Witi i The writing of Witi i has touched generations of readers. The first Māori writer to publish both a book of short stories and a novel, he has since written more than 30 books for adults and children, as well as screenplays, scripts, essays and libretto. Born in Gisborne, Ihimaira worked in the diplomatic service through the 1970s and 80s, eventually taking up the position of Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Auckland. His best-known novel is The Whale Rider, made into the award-winning film. And other novels adapted for the screen include Nights in the Garden of Spain, *Bulabasha*, and Medicine Women. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Book of the Year at the New Zealand Book Awards, an inaugural Star of Oceania Award from the University of Hawaii, a Laureate Award from the New Zealand Arts Foundation, the Toi Māori Maui Tiki Tiki Awards, the Premier Māori Arts Award Te Tōhu Tiki Tiki Ati Waka Toi, and the Premio Ostana International Award. He is a distinguished Companion of the Order of New Zealand, and beyond the prizes. Ihimaira is a respected voice on Māori, Pacific and Indigenous affairs and advocates compellingly for Māori artists as well as for Māori and New Zealand literature. We salute his remarkable achievements in an hour chaired by Paula Morris.
1: We hope you enjoy it. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I'm Nicola Leggett, the Deputy Chair of the Auckland Writers' Festival Trust. And on behalf of the festival board, I want to thank you so much for being at this year's festival and coming to this special event tonight. It's been a really intellectually invigorating six days, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. It's my great pleasure to introduce the final festival session, our Honoured New Zealand Writer Hour. This festival takes its commitment to supporting New Zealand literature and the careers of New Zealand writers very seriously, and one of the ways we do that is to shine the spotlight every year on the long and distinguished careers of our most eminent writers. An event to celebrate one of our literary giants has been the festival finale since 2012. And since then we've honored Morris G, Albert Wendt, Patricia Grace, C.K. Stead, Vincent O'Sullivan, and Fiona Kidman. Tonight we we honour another of of Aotearoa's national treasures, Witi Ihamaira, a rangatira of our writing. And honouring Witi tonight seems a perfect bookend to this festival. On Tuesday night, earlier in the week, the 50th New Zealand Book Awards were held in this hall as the first public event of the festival. Those awards began in 1968. Not very many years after that, in 1973, a new and really unknown Maori writer called Witi Ihamaira came in third place for a landmark short story collection called Ponamu Ponamu. It's now part of the canon of New Zealand literature. One year later, he was back with tangi, this time in first place. And since then, he has dominated our literary landscape with award after award, honor after honor, and book after wonderful book. So, now to close the festival, we're in for a huge treat. Witi Ehmaira, the Auckland Writers' Festival honored New Zealand writer for 2018, in conversation with Dr. Paula Morris. Would you please join me in welcoming Paula to the podium?
2: Tihe Mauriora, Enereo, Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa, witi, off stage, hemihi nui kiakwe, kokwe te kayarahi, te rangatira, te kairanga kakahu hoki, tēnei po, mato iaque. Kopala and it is my great privilege to speak this evening with witi Ihamira, our rangatira, as Nicholas said, our weaver of words. We're here today to celebrate Witte as our honored writer at the festival for his landmark creative work, the vision and commitment of his co-papa, and the long reach of his fearless, tireless imagination. Through Witte's work, generations of New Zealanders have come to understand a little better what he called in the matriarch, the world of the Maori, of communion between gods and man, the fabulous with the real. He's drawn us into his spirals and webs, his centers and boundaries, and shown us both newer and older ways of telling stories, owning and interpreting histories, engaging with the wairua of oral traditions, and understanding this place where we stand together, not the old world, as he says, but our world. Now, not only has he led the way in writing, publishing, winning awards, being world famous, Uh, But through his anthologies, his uh, writing initiatives, and his shared projects, and his advocacy work, he's broadened the path. He's made it possible for so many more of us to follow and to create new pathways of our own into the past and into the future. He's the most generous of mentors and the most inspiring of models. I don't think we can overstate the vastness of his contribution to our reading and writing culture and therefore to our society, and how we make sense of ourselves. Uh, tonight in our kōrero, we'll explore the places words have led him, and about some of the turning points and passions of his writing life. Please welcome Witi Ehumaira.
3: Well, my daughters say almost famous. And of course, uh, you know, Taika Waititi better watch out with this um, um, racist as fuck because if, if she can speak Māori with that wonderful real, then so can all of us. Whakataka te te uru, whakataka te te tonga. Ki kina ki ki ma E hi ake, te atakura, he tio, he huka, he hauhunga, ti hei maure ora. He mihi tuatahi ki tēnei whare, te whare mahana, tēnā koe. Uh, koutou ki te, um, uh, when, uh, ki te tangta whenua, uh, ngā, ngāti, ngāti Whātua, uh, tēnā koutou. We are here, of course, in the grounds of Ngāti Whātua, among their mountains, among their sea and in their land, and we pay tribute to that. Nareta ngā mate o te haire haire aire, aire kua fitu rangi ki paero kia koto te iwi nei te hunga mati te na koto te koto hara mai no mai kotai mai. It starts like this: I'm a five-year-old boy a Māori boy standing at the side of Lavenham Road with my grandmother Teria outside her and granddad's rambling homestead. We're waiting for the school bus. There are other older cousins at the bus stop too and Teria is giving them instructions to look after me because I'm going to school at nearby Patutahi and I can't wait. I'm, I am excited and I'm not afraid because I truly want to go to a Pākehā school. As for Teria, she must have had conflicting emotions. Well, this mokopuna, will be living among them soon, but I hope he has been filled up with as much of his culture as I can give him. As for the future, he is in God's hands. Well, the bus arrives and I get on it, and when I arrive at Pachutahi Primary, my cousins take me to the school office to be registered. I can't remember what happens at school, but I must have enjoyed it because when I return to Waituhi on the bus and my grandmother is there to greet me, I'm really brimming with excitement. She asks me a question. She says, eh, which? So what great wisdom did you learn at school today? I learned a nursery rhyme, Nanny, I answer. It was about a boy called Jack and a girl named Jill. And as I skip along the path to the homestead, I start to recite it. And I'd love you to join me in it. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. And Jill came tumbling after. Well, anybody in the English-speaking Commonwealth will immediately recognise the nursery rhyme, and in my own generation, we were all taught it, and when enticed, will always recite it in the same sing-song manner as you've done. So, Teria looks at me puzzled, and she asks, Well, who are Jack and Jill? Why aren't they called Tama and Mary? And why is Jack wearing a crown? It's his own fault if he falls down and breaks it. And what are Jack and Jill doing going up a hill to fetch water? (laughs) What a stupid place to put a well. (laughs) Comes my second day at Pajutahi Primary School and Grandmother sees me off again and it must have been another exciting day and at the end of it there she is waiting for me to return to Waituhe. So, uh, which, what was the great wisdom you learned from the Pākehā today? Her intonation conveys suspicion, and I'm not at all keen to tell her. Well, I learned another nursery rhyme, Nanny. I really did. It's about a little girl called Miss Muffet. (laughs) I look at her cautiously as I recite the rhyme, one, two. Little Miss Muffet. Surely this is inoffensive enough for Teria. But she starts to critique this nursery rhyme too. Who is Little Miss Muffet? Why isn't she Little Miss Mahapihi? What's a tuffet? What are curds and, whey? and What a silly girl to be frightened of a spider and run away. Why didn't she say kia to it? It wasn't until I was much older that I realised how truly wise my grandmother was because with her questions she was conveying to me that I was moving into a world that was not a Māori one where Pākehā names and attitudes would prevail, would provide the prevailing context of my future, of all of our futures. And their world was an upside down nonsensical place where people built wells at the tops of hills. It was a place unlike the Waituhi Valley where people did not uh, talk to spiders, but they ran away from spiders its values were anathema to ours. Well, I know that some people will say, but Jack and Jill and Little Miss Muffet are just nursery rhymes, and part of me would agree with you. However, they also come from a Western European narrative, and they map out that culture's value system. Many of us learn the rhymes by rote without questioning them, and again I ask, what is a Muffet? What is a tuffet? What occurs in way? Some of you will know, but I suspect the majority won't. So my grandmother, Teria, from the very beginning, taught me to always question, not to take for granted. She also taught me that it all depends on the story that you hear and who tells it. Well, my sister Carolina and I decided when we were teenagers to to regender the Jack and Jill story, because when you look at it, the nursery rhyme emphasises male power. We went around the house at Hague Street, singing at the top of our lungs. Jill and Jack went up the track to fetch a pail of water. Jill fell down and broke her crown, and it was Jack who tumbled after. We did the same with the Miss Muffet nursery rhyme. Little Master Muffet sat on his tuffet, eating his curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside him and, What do you think Little Master Muffet would do? squashed it. <laughs> That's why we need more women in charge of the world. All my life I have been writing the story of the spider. te <laughs> Ka roha ti te pine e koren e uai te na koto, te na koto, te na tatu katoa.
2: Kia ora, Whiti.
3: Well, it was so wonderful to have you two beautiful women as my support <laughs> back there. You always have to have a whānau behind you.
2: We were the support act behind Witi. It's so wonderful hearing you sing. This is going to be quite a musical evening, I believe. Well, actually,
3: I've been singing quite a lot lately because um, I'm just about one month away from doing the final draft of my next book, which is uh, Native Sun. and... I've got enough energy and electricity running around inside me at the moment because, you know, it's a terrible situation. You're one month away, um, you don't know what you've done. You keep on thinking, oh my God, this is all rat shit, this story. Um, there's this problem I've got to solve. You've got a checklist that you, you use. Has it got kopapa a purpose? Has it got tikanga? Is it truthful? Does it have mana? Is there a petal to it? Can the book go out, because you know, I've always thought of my books as being um, books that you can hongi, that you can press noses with. Is this a book that um, somebody would want to press noses with? All of that, so you know, I feel as if there's lightning coming out of my armpits. <laughs> and that I can, actually I've got enough power zipping and zapping around me to, uh, you know, to power the national grid. <laughs> so, yes. so
2: it, I mean, if you chose to right now, you could just sit back you could just be a national treasure, hang out with your grandchildren, but instead you remain a a very prolific and dedicated writer. I mean, you've published novels, stories, you've written plays, operas, a ballet, you're working on memoir now, you're also a a very active editor, as we were just discussing. What drives you to keep writing?
3: Did you say it's disgusting? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, you know, I'm blind in this ear. There's somebody in here called Chris. He was sitting um, with me because I was saying, I can't hear, I can't hear out of this ear. So I've come to the, the, um, the clinic. It didn't say
2: disgusting.
3: I've come to the <laughs> clinic to, to see if they can um, get some ear drops in my ear. So and we
2: have to sit this way. We have to. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to write questions for Witty and pass them to him. <laughs> <our local laughs> so what drives you to keep writing right now?
3: What drives me? I think the, the future drives me, I think. Um, actually it's been so fantastic to be here because, uh, you know, I've just been a groupie listening to other writers and so they inspire me and Shashi Tharoa in his session, um, he said that he felt a moral urgency in what he does. And so from the very beginning when I was a young boy I always felt this moral urgency and that urgency was to tell the story of Maori people and in particular tell it within a multi-generational framework because um, I thought to myself uh, when I was younger that um, at the time my writing, I'd first done Ponamu Ponamu in 1972 and then Whanau the novel in 1973 and then Tangi in 1974. And what they were all doing was spiraling from um, the middle out from a rural um, setting into, a, um, into an urban one. And so I, I could have kept on going, I guess you might call it horizontally, mm-hmm. and then getting to the kind of novel actually that people were wanting me to write um, in those days, which was First Were Warriors, that sort of novel. But instead of that, um, I went down the spiral. Instead of going out that way, I went down this way. And always, my work is always being informed by what is known as the putake, which is the taproot going down into myth. So that is what informs me, and that is what propels me, the need to keep on creating new myths out of old myths. And so, for instance, Whale Rider was a new myth out of an old myth, out of of what we call the Ur-text, or the original ancient text. And um, The Matriarch um, was a novel. It's um, er urtext, or its original Maori myth was tāwhaki and whaitiri, the whole idea of a grandmother, her name is whaitiri, who comes down from the sky. And she sets in motion a multi-generational story. She has um, a son, Hema, who has another son, tāwhaki, who has another son, Wahieroa? Who has another son, Rata? And so my way of, of creating the Maori story for the matriarch was to think multi generational, rationally, and try to create the sense of a family through time. And all, all of my books, in fact, have, have been these multi generational sagas, which is a problem, really, because they're getting. Too bloody long.
2: <laughs> I want to talk more about your fiction in detail but I wonder if we could just take a little sidestep at the moment into something that you wrote quite recently, uh, a work that was set to music, Flowing oh, yes, Water. Sorry. Can you tell us about that?
3: Well Janet Jennings, the composer, I think she's in the audience, um, is the composer for um, this particular piece which we're going to show you from Flowing Water, which was premiered in Hamilton just earlier this year. And it tells the story of the, um, um, the intertwining relationship between Māori and Pākehā in Hamilton. Would you welcome Joel Amosa and Anna Mann?
4: the crowd
3: Thank you. you
2: so Whitty, you were involved in actual opera, but when you were talking about The Matriarch just now, the novel is big, multi-generational, too bloody long, as you said, but there's always been something very operatic to your vision, don't you think?
3: Okay, so as you know, um, there's urtext, which is the original text, but then there's also intertext. So. In my work, I, I then actually try to bring an intertextual uh, meaning to it, which means that I, try, I tried in The Matriarch to bring in a sense of the history of Italy. And why Italy? Well, at the same time that we had the land wars in New Zealand, um, they were having um, uh, um, Garibaldi. Mm-hmm. So I felt that uh, if I created out of the De character in The Matriarch, um, a construct which was like uh, Garibaldi in, um, in Italy, then international writers, because I was, uh, an international audience, because I was really wanting to get an international audience, um, they would then understand, and they would then be able to, um, to correlate what they understood about European history, and then see um, through the prism of my work that there wasn't that much uh, difference between them. And I, I did the same thing with, um, The Parihaka woman, the Parihaka woman, um, its intertext is um, Fidelio, the Beethoven opera, because in the Beethoven opera, you have a a woman um, called um, Leonor who goes visiting prisons, trying to find her husband who has been uh, jailed by a man called uh, Pizarro. And so although the urtext for um, the Parihaka woman is the Parihaka experience where the power was raised and pulled down by government troops. The intertext is the, the, uh, the Beethoven story of Fidelio, of her name in the novel is Erinora, not Leonor, and the villain is called Piharo, not Pizarro, and the husband that she's looking for is called Horitana, whereas in the Beethoven, he's called Floristan. So I have a lot of fun when I'm writing. <laughs> I think I've got, you know, I have a subversive, mischievous, cheeky attitude, but it is because whenever I think of European high art, high art, I always think, why can't Maori be put into the same uh, box as, as that? So I'm always aiming my trajectories at high art, um, complexities. And as far as opera is concerned, I wrote an opera called Galileo. But again, although the opera is about Galileo, it's actually about the urtex is a chief from Turanga, from, um, from Gisga. So you've got to be careful about me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but was this partly a reaction to the reception for your first books? I mean, you talk about that incredible period in the 70s, before you turned 30, where you published three books in a row, one of which was the first novel published by Maori, one was the first short story collection. But at the time, some reviewers at least responded to it as folk art, that's the term. Mm. Do you feel that you were kind of reacting about the, against that to sort of show the extent of your ambition mm. or your subversion?
3: Well, um, as a New Zealand writer, what you have to do is to well, you're locked in to what the prevailing context tells you. And so what I was was a Maori writer um, working with other Maori writers, like Roly Habib, for instance, you know, I mean, I went to see Rolly the show about Roly that Nancy Brunning has done, and there, there was an interesting slide that they showed of a woman at 80. And this woman at, at 80 had said, look at me at this age, and I'm still pro- fucking protesting this shit. <laughs> So, in many ways, that was how I was in those days. I was protesting, but I had to protest within and conform to a type of literature that was being developed at the time. So, the first book that I wrote was, was actually declined by three writers before it was accepted by the, by the next uh, uh, publisher. And that publisher had actually, um, who, who was Heinemann, they were looking to create in New Zealand um, an equivalent of the Black African Writers' Series. So I actually lucked into the right uh, publisher, and David Heap was the publisher at the time, who was looking to create in New Zealand another kind of literature. Pat Grace uh, at the time um, had had begun to, had been writing way before me, but um, had not published a book. Uh, there are a number of other writers around. But I was the one who came up and out before anybody knew about it. I mean, Roley thought, um, he, he came to me and said, oh, we were all writing before you were out of your nappies. <laughs> and he's right, because, uh, you know, I didn't think. I mean, what I should have done was kept in the queue and waited for him and waited for Pat and waited for the others to, um, to develop their... Uh, you know, um, their own um, styles and their own um, uh, way of of talking. Um, but that then kind of like um, came back on me because even though I had written those first three books very fast and in London, so I was writing in exile in London in 1971 when Jane and I were on our honeymoon there. She would go out to Hounslow and teach and she would leave me in the one-bedroom apartment and say, when I come back, I want to see three more pages done. Instead, as soon as she left on the, the train, I'd go and have a good time, start at the pub. <laughs> but, as I say, it all came back on me because after those first three books came out, I thought to myself, what, have I, what the hell have I done? You know, I, I honestly didn't know... Um, what I'd done and what I did know was that I hadn't pushed them far enough outside the boundary, I hadn't created the transgression that sometimes if you are trying to create something new, um, I I hadn't got there. So as you know I stopped writing for 10 years and it was during those 10 years that I recast myself, that I reformed myself, that I reinvented myself uh, as the writer of The Matriarch. That was then the beginning of a sec- what I call the new Ahimaida or the Ahimaida uh, who wasn't so safe, uh, wasn't so um, pretty in terms of uh, the, um, the fiction that I was putting out. And the formula that I used to say to myself from then on was, I can't write a book if it doesn't have politics in it. And sometimes my politics are too overt but I can't help it. The politics of difference and the ability to bring and centre your work in the putake is, in my opinion, what makes um, Māori fiction and what makes Māori literature. I sometimes think, for instance, that um, now um, Māori writers don't have to think that way because they don't have that same putake as I have. They don't have the same kind of need to answer to all of those people inside my brain who are scraping my skull out. My grandmother, my grandfather, um, the whānau back in Waituhi, um, all of the people who have brought me up. What they've brought me up to do is to try to recreate Māori culture within and outside and through the context of Pākehā culture in New Zealand. And I think we're doing damn well. I think we're doing damn well, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, you know, you look at the, at, at the composition of our parliament now, 120 members of a parliament, and of those, 38, at least 38, are either Maori, Pacific Islander, or Asian. That's one third of our parliament. Mm-hmm. You look at the, yeah, yeah you look at the number of, um, of cases that have gone through the, the treaty process, no other country has gone through that same process. There were 68 cases that had been seen by 2014. I think there's been another, another um, 14 or 15 cases that have gone uh, before the Waitangi Tribunal. And to me, it's just absolutely amazing that New Zealand would confront that, to apologize, to absolutely provide a, um, a, a system of, uh, of recompense. It's just fantastic. The other thing is that Auckland is going to be Maori in the next decade. Um, in 1968, the uh, Pākehā in Auckland were, I think, around about 37, uh, uh, 67%. Uh, now, and, and all quite old, like you're an aging population I'm afraid to say, whereas uh, Māori and Pākehā, and Asian, New Zealand's Pacific room is really having an impact. So I look at the Millennials today and I think, man oh man, this country is going to really transform itself. It's going to be amazing.
2: You've You've talked a lot in the past about maybe creating a South Pacific aesthetic or one that's not always defining ourselves against the, the old centers of power. And uh, you brought onto stage with you a really important book from last year, Black Marks on the White Page, which reframes us with looking out into the Pacific rather than just around the edges of it. Would you talk about why you got involved in that with Tina Macaretti in that anthology?
3: Well, as I say, you know, I've got these ancestors in my in my head, and they do scrape my skull out, and they make life very, very difficult, uh, you know, for me, because they are absolutely impeccable in terms of uh, of, of their own qualifications. Um, you know, they speak Tureo, they understand um, the culture, um, they can do a haka, I can hardly do a haka. When I move to the right, everybody moves to the left. When I go forward. <laughs> they go back, you know. I brought a whole pucker um, Party down on its knees because I was so, so bad at it. So what was the, what was the question?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll quote, I'll quote that from the intro oh, to Black oh, Monks yes. on the White Page. So I'm, I'm always
3: looking for new ways Ma- of recreating, okay. recreating who we are. Um, I think that because New Zealand itself um, China is now our second largest um, trading partner, but we haven't kept up with the reality of our situation, and nor have we kept up with the Pacific in us. So even for Maori, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are working within a Pacific indigenous context rather than an exclusively Maori one. So that's why that book.
2: You also uh, said in the intro, you and Tina wrote, that Māori Pacifica and Aboriginal writing constitutes a disruptive act in the worldwide literary landscape. You talked about yourself earlier as being full of mischief, but you also also are a provocateur of of sorts, and you are trying to disrupt the narrative when you talk about your intertextuality, but also just in having collaborations like this, just in creating anthologies like this.
3: Well, I know that all of the authors here would consider themselves to be agents provocateurs in a sense, you know, for what they're doing. We're all trying to not not tell the same story, even if people think it's the same story. Um, Stephanie Johnson doesn't tell the same story. You know, I mean she's a, a real um, agent provocateur and Kennedy is exactly the same. But it's 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 not just in terms of, of, of the text, it's in terms of how it's written. And the stylistic devices, it's in terms of the um, the quality of of discourse within. Um, I think that we are all involved in, in pretext, for instance, in uh, context, for instance, in subtext. We have a, an extremely intelligent group of, of writers, and my god, they're even, you know, they're even getting better, who are recreating in New Zealand a very complicated, complicated and complex way of looking at ourselves. I mean, I was at Peter Wells' session and the one thing that disturbed me with what Peter was saying was that he felt that uh, Māori were becoming, he didn't say it in this way, but the way I interpreted it was that uh, Māori were becoming so strong um, that Pākehā were feeling less positive about their history. And I wanted to get up and shout, Peter, please don't feel that way, and please don't ever feel that way, because what we do need is for us to join and to, uh, you know, to become this new place, this new um, construct um, of the, you know, of 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 uh, of the present for the future. Like one of the people I've been reading lately is Jung, and Jung, in two essays um, on the Um, um, on the psychological consciousness, talks about the mana personality. So he must have known about um, Tafaki, the Tafaki cycle, or he certainly must have known about Polynesians. And he felt that this mana personality was um, an example of the collective consciousness. So what I'm trying to do, and what all of the authors who are New Zealanders here are trying to do, I hope I can speak for them, is to create this mana personality who can work for a future for New Zealand, this monopersonality personality that is both Māori and Pākehā that is both male and female, who can get us past the MeToo hashtag um, way in, in, in which uh, things are being conducted, who can get us through the environmental issues that we're facing, who can get us past in trying to find new ways of conducting economic and financial relationships with the world. So I'm looking forward to that development of that, that mana personality. And if you, if, if you are surprised at the way I'm talking, it's because Shashi Tharoor, well, you know, I, I, I used to belong to foreign affairs. I was a, um, a diplomat uh, in foreign affairs and served in New York and Washington and um, Australia. And then I came to the point where I either had to, well, I, this was in 1990, and I thought, I can continue to be a, a diplomat, and I'd be a really damn good diplomat, but a lousy writer with all of these lousy books that I had, or I could become a fantastic writer and be a lousy diplomat, but I couldn't do both. So the reason why I'm talking like this is, I guess I'm influenced by what Shashi was saying, because he actually ended up at the United Nations, and I kind of look at him and think, hmm, maybe <laughs> I could have been that person.
2: Which <laughs> <laughs> it was when you were in New York that you wrote The Whale Rider, yes?
3: All of my, well, most of my work has been written overseas. The Whale Rider was written in New York, and um, that's the, the book that um, really fell up. It, well, it came up and out without hitting the sides is the way that I like to, I like to explain it, because my daughters were coming to visit me in New York, and we always give each other something. So that was the story that I gave them. Um, also, Miss Mansfield was written in Narragansett there. Um, the Trawena Sea was written in um, Tasmania. Um, the Parihaka Woman was written in Hawaii. So I'm like you, I travel all over the world like you do, and then I write my work there. Mm-hmm. Because coming back home, you, you get involved in the business of, of uh, you know, of life and the business of being a writer rather than writing. Mm -hmm. And even though I love it, I mean, I've just come back from Wellington where my three grandchildren are, and they love to gang up on me. So one of their their games is that they um, herd me into the sea in May, the middle of May. (laughs) And then the, the game is we have to stop Papa from coming out of, out of the sea onto the beach and they're throwing seaweed and they're throwing things, you know, to keep me there. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a loving grandfather, so I pretend that I'm, you know, um, helpless. And then in the end, I go, oh, save me, save me, I'm drowning. And I do that so they can come and pull me out.
2: <laughs> now, what you it was been so deprecating before when I said you were world famous, but you are the single most in-demand New Zealand writer. Festivals all over the world want you all the time. Now part of that is, obviously, t- it's a tribute to your writing, but also a tribute to the complete reach of the movie version of Whale Rider, which made a huge impact internationally. Did you find things really changed for you after, after the whole world found out about it?
3: Well, um, I really am fortunate that four of my books have been made into movies writer was the very first one, and Nikki Kara was the most fantastic director. But each time you make a movie, and those of you who are movie makers or have had movie experience um, will know, first of all, you have to write the script, and then um, you have to find the money, and John Barnett um, was exceptional in that way, and we were fortunate that at that time, um, the prime minister was a woman, mm-hmm. Helen Clark, and she created this fund um, the New Zealand Film Fund. And so we actually were able to make the movie out of her film fund. So I love women Prime Ministers, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another thing. Look at, look, look at the Māori who are, uh, you know, we had Simon Bridges, the, the uh, leader of um, the other party, I'll call it, um, and he's, he's Māori. We have um, uh, the co-leader of the Greens, a woman, Marama, so we, we have these, these women, but clearly she was um, terrific for us. And so there was Nikki, And then the second one was um, called um, Nights in the Gardens of Spain, Kawa. And that was made by a Maori woman. And then the third one was um, White Lies. And that was made by a Mexican director, Dana Rotberg. Uh, the reason why I'm really excited about um, Dana's work was that she was a Mexican woman who had seen Whale Rider um, in Guadalajara. And so she had decided to come to New Zealand, and John met her and, and he said, well, you know, would you like to make a movie here? And she said, well, I'd like to, to make a movie on Whitiya Humayra's short story called Medicine Woman. But th- the most important thing about that movie is that it passed the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test is a, a test of a movie in which two of the main characters must be women, in White Lies There Were Four, they must have a conversation, which does not include talking about a man. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 it passed the Bechdale test. I have to say that it's probably one of the most proudest moments of my life was to know that. <laughs> and then the fourth movie was um, uh-huh. Mahana. And uh, Mahana was made again by um, a, a Māori director and most fabulous uh, director of Once Were Warriors, he came back uh, to, to make this, uh, this movie uh, for us, Lee Tamahori. But always the issue is, is there enough money? And when there isn't enough money, can we make the, um, the movie for less? So don't think it was easy. Whale Rider took 12 years to get up, um, Mahana took seven. All of, our, all of our movies, all of our cultural product, in fact, have been extremely difficult to negotiate. Even writers have these, these problems even today. I am trying to, to, to put up a number of other projects. And again, we were talking about this uh, at the back there. Um, you suggested that I go to an organisation here um, to get that particular project going. So. Why do we do it? Why do you do it? Why do we do it? I think it's because we have a co-papa. A Clearly, we, we have a co-papa. But we also love what we're doing. I love what, we're, what I'm doing, even if I'm going around the house now thinking, oh, why the hell? Are you, why can't you, native son, be exactly what you're supposed to be? Why are you giving me all of this shit? I mean, you know, you talk to your work like that. And then instead of that, I go around singing, I see a bad moon arising, I see trouble on the way. (laughs) Or if it's going good, I go, Somewhere over the rainbow way up high that's when it's going really well (laughs) or else when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are anything your heart desires can come true well I've only got a month to go and it'll come true
2: (laughs) can we talk about another landmark book that you brought out very recently, uh, Sleep Standing Moetu. Uh, the first time we've had a, a literary novel in New Zealand with a simultaneous uh, te reo translation. So English on one side by Witi, and then the, what's been called a very elegant and supple te reo translation by Hemi Kelly, who I believe is here tonight. And it's not only that that makes it very special, it's also about the Battle of Arako, which is one of our great events of the 19th century, extremely important, much more important than say, you know, I don't know, the what is it, the light brigade, the, what were they doing? The charging, they were charging. It's late in the festival, isn't it? It's late in the festival. Um, Something that was so important in our national consciousness, but has started to slip away. So what you're doing here is reclaiming our history and at the same time telling a cracking story. And telling it in English and telling it in Táréo, do you see more of this kind of thing ahead for you or for other writers?
3: Well, um, I'm really fortunate in that I have a, a very positive and warm and loving relationship with my publisher, and so um, with this book, it wasn't supposed to be like that. What it was supposed to be was that um, Hemi came to me and he said that he wanted to, you know, to have a text of mine to publish um, um, as a a language learner text. So I saw Harriet and I said, well how would this be? And so we thought first of all it might be around about 29 pages long, nice and easy to to get out. But then when I kept on looking at it interrogating it and and considering it, it, it was clear to me that, you know, and because there had been no bilingual novel published in New Zealand, it was yet again one of those challenges that I could see about uh, recreating or creating, and out of it, um, some kind of transformational literature. So that's that, and out of it, I've discovered something brilliant, and that is that if I um, ask somebody to come and co-author something with me, well, they usually say yes. So with that one sleep standing, it was uh, with, uh, hear me with this one, um, Black Mark's on the white page, it was with Tina and as you know I'm doing another one now with Fitti um, Hereaka and that's uh, going to be about Pura Ako, that very taproot that I earlier talked about, uh, the opera was done with uh, Janet Jennings and John Drummond, um, there's another opera coming up next year which is uh, uh, again with a, with a different composer so If these things happen, then what they do is that they add to the putea. They add to the, to the the rewarding, enriching experience of the multi-stories that we tell about ourselves. So for me, that's all what I do. And actually Ngugi said that he was a storyteller. Were you there when he said he was a storyteller? Well, I'm not a storyteller, I'm a story singer. And what
2: is the difference between those two things? Mm -hmm. What's the difference?
3: The difference is that out of the Pacific and out of that putake and out of what was known as the singing word, because they used to call um, Maori the singing word, and out of waiata and chants and haka, which is our most um, logical construct, comes a more musical approach to literature. Whereas um, European or Pākehā literature has not come out of that singing, that chanting, that evolutionary way of articulating through legends, through myth, through history, but through kapahaka, you know, through kapahaka. And I've always said that the, that the best Māori writers are going to come out of the kapahaka tradition because that is dance that is theater that is, e- that is everything that can burst the pages of that book all of those books and put them into a, a hologrammatic multi-dimensional third or fifth or, or fourth dimensional space which also includes what I call the psychic text and I think that what you what you find when you you, you, you read Maori um, I think is this psychic understanding that comes from the fact that, in my case, I, I do try to, to write books that you can me that you can press noses with. So again, there's another point, and that is that in the books, the books are not about me. This is me, but the books are about an, what I call an idolon ihimaira. It's, it's an ehemida who was set loose from a particular incident that happened to me when I was a young boy, and Iki who is unafraid and totally unlike myself in the literature, a very strong person, a very aggressive person, probably, you know, a very fierce person, fierce intellectually, fierce in terms of passion, fierce in terms of politics. That's where I put all of my ferocity within the books. Of course I am, ferocious too, personally. Um, but you're both genial me.
2: and ferocious, so how do you see your ferocity as a person? Is it just in your drive to, to get things happening, to make things happen? How are you ferocious?
3: How am I? Ferocious. Ferocious. Like um, committing myself to the kaupapa, and that kaupapa is to ensure that the story of the Māori um, continues to transform itself. Um, in fact, I can see a time when the labels will become meaningless. When you think about what is happening today and when you then forecast maybe 10 or 20 years' time. I don't think that there will, there will be our need for labels like Pākehā and Māori. I think that we will have recreated ourselves as different people with a common or similar though often different approach to the way in which um, we look at ourselves. But, I th- but you know what I mean? I mean, I th- I'm, I'm thinking that when you get to the situation where, for instance, my, children, my grandchildren have blonde hair and blue eyes, you know. when you get to that situation, and although I was talking to a friend of mine um, today and she was worried about the racism in New Zealand and I said to her, yes, we are still a racist country. There are these good signs. Um, the whales are singing. Um, and I have to be hopeful. So my, my role is to be ferociously hopeful and to be ferocious in the, t- in, in the way of, of, of bringing out books that tell that hopeful story of a a culture and a country that I'm extremely proud of here at the bottom of the world.
2: you I don't think we should follow that with anything but a song. And I think we should all sing together. Yes, you up for it? And we're going to sing pokari Kaliana. I'm are only going to sing two verses of it. And just to remind some of you of it, we have the words up here. I'm thank con- you. And I'm conscious that um, it's the perfect way to thank Witty for everything he has done and is doing for us, the singing Maori, to, <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate him in song. So will you all stand up and join us?
3: Ah, Anna's here so she can start us.
2: So how are we going to start? Shall I start us off? I've got the big microphone, okay? Oh, our singers, (laughs) would you like to start us off?
3: Thank you. Thank
4: you.
0: And it is now my pleasure to present, as we do every year, a token of our esteem to our honored writer. Every year we charge the wonderful uh, artist Chris Charteris with presenting uh, a piece of work for our honoured writer. It is inspired by the idea of a a penknife, and the piece that Chris has created this year is quite extraordinary, and I know he felt it was a tremendous honour to be asked to do this, and it is my honour to present this to Witty in acknowledgement of everything he has given to the world of literature in Aotearoa. (laughs) And now on that beautiful note we're going to wrap this extraordinary festival. This is the end of six days uh, a year of hard work by a team who I just want to acknowledge and I particularly want to acknowledge Tessa and Roger, uh, Chris, Claire, Nicola, Penny, Olivia, Andy, our drivers, our stage managers, our 100 volunteers, our tremendous board, uh, all of whom have brought you something that I can't even begin to describe. And when I think about where we started on Tuesday with, you know, two and a half thousand students in here and the journey we have taken across our uh, story over the last six days, I feel very moved. And even today I think about, you know, beginning with uh, David Eagleman talking about the brain and the future. I think about people coming out of the science of love this whole afternoon and telling me how they cried at the way people shared their stories of how they met and whom they loved and this evening as we've just started to pack up in parts of the lobby I ran into um, a friend Kate Cox and she said to me I've just been in and out of so many sessions and it just reminds me reminded me why I am alive and I thought that was a beautiful way to wrap the week it's been incredibly successful we have we are starting to dispatch uh, 200 writers around the place they seem very happy the audience certainly has been uh, wonderfully appreciative in many ways, and I can tell you that we have exceeded all attendance records. We had over 74,000 attendances here in the last six days, which is um, just extraordinary. This little country at the end of the world, so hungry, so engaged, so vibrant, and so connected with the world of idea and story. Thank you to everybody and thank you to you, our audience, actually. We do this for you, it is an honor and a privilege, if sometimes a slog, Um, and uh, it is just wonderful to come to this point and to send you out for 365 days because we're back on the 14th of May, 2019 some writers are already booked, I'm not telling you who, um, to send you out and to hopefully have inspired and energised you for the days and weeks and months ahead until we come back together again. So thank you. And the final word this evening will go to our board chair, Pip Muir. So I'd just like to invite Pip to the stage. Actually, one more thing for a guy. I should just say that uh, which he will, of course, be signing books in the lobby. There are books for sale. He will be there. Please come and connect and uh, share with him your thoughts about him and his work. Thank you.
5: Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Car no katoa. hari Mai, mai. Kiora Witi and Paula. Finally, Anne has thanked everyone else for this wonderful week we've had during this festival. but) We cannot let the festival end without thanking her. We have the most remarkable festival director here. The people that she mentioned in the festival team are appointees of hers. She has built a beautiful team here. It's a small and hard working team and we are so grateful and inspired by all she does. We've had a wonderful week and the record numbers that we've had today are testament to the fact that you will want to come and listen and be inspired and we will continue to do that work. And can I ask you all please to join with me in thanking the amazing Anne O'Brien. Festival is over. See you in two
4: thousand and
0: nineteen. You've been listening to a podcast from the two thousand and eighteen Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.